Well, good day, Fellowship family. It's great to have you with us on this cold winter morning. It's the coldest of our year so far. And uh, before I preached this morning, I looked out into our forest there, and everything just looked dead. But it's not. It's not, because all it's going to take is some, a weather change, and things are going to wake up again. And, you know, that's this whole picture of living hope of what we're going through over the next several weeks is that things in you may feel dead. Things may around you may look dead and things that are happening around you may feel like it's coming apart. But there is a living hope in you. Can I just tell you from the weather perspective, six months ago to the day, it was 94 degrees outside. Dream of that. Almost wants to put on shorts right now, right? Don't. (laughs) So we're looking at this whole concept of living hope, and we're going through two books of the New Testament, first and second Peter. And Peter was no stranger to hope. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to first Peter chapter one as we begin this series. And as you're turning, let me give you a little bit of a picture of the story of Peter. Peter was from a town in uh, the north of the Sea of Galilee called Bethsaida. And uh, I've traveled to Bethsaida as I went to uh, Israel and came across uh, streets like this. And I love this little town because uh, due to the archaeological excavations, you can get right to the very streets that Jesus walked on during his ministry. And as I traveled through this little town, I came across this area that they uncovered called the Fisherman House. And how do you know it was fishermen? Well, they found hooks. Everything else kind of perishes in time, but the hooks made it, and they found a whole bunch of them, and it actually debunked a thought about Jesus and his followers, that his followers were primarily homeless people, and they just needed someone around them, and so they followed him because he would provide for their needs. But this is actually debunks that because this home was one of the largest homes in the city of Bethsaida, which means that when Peter, who was from this town, when met Jesus at the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus said, Peter, Andrew, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. They were actually leaving a family business. It had a future. It wasn't that they were destitute. And so by following Jesus, they left this this inheritance that they had to go and pursue someone who basically called them to a, a, a different life, a spiritual life. And so Peter learned to lean into Jesus. When you followed a rabbi in that day, you basically said, I am going to follow everything about you. You did life together with that person. You not only listened, but you followed orders on what they did. And and here's Peter leaning in with Jesus. He's hearing his teachings. He's seeing with his very own eyes the miracles of Jesus. And he followed him to the death. And it's interesting that when Jesus was arrested, Peter... Peter was one of those guys who said, I'll never deny you. And that was the other angle of Peter. He suffered with open mouth insert foot syndrome. He'd always spoke first, thought second. And yet Jesus was patient with him. He said, Peter, before the sun rises, before the rooster crows, three times, you're going to deny me three times. And sure enough, he denied him. I know nothing of this guy. I, I, and even swore at a guy, at at someone who accused him of being with a a woman who accused him of being with Jesus. And so, um, this is a guy who denied Christ. And yet 
something happened to radically change this. The resurrection of Jesus. Jesus rose from the dead. And he went, and Peter was one of those, and I love how John details it. He raced him to the tomb because they were so excited. And John speaks of himself in the third person. He beat him. You know, it was important in the word of God that John was faster than Peter to the tomb. <laughs> I kind of like that. A little competitive nature to it. But Peter goes in, and as soon as he saw the way the grave clothes were, he believed. He believed. And it was radically changed. He went from someone who denied Jesus to someone who boldly proclaimed Jesus. And the gospel spread through him. So much so that it spread to the ends of the earth. Peter was Jewish and he spoke with a Jewish perspective. And he went to an area and as he traveled to those areas, he would start with a Jewish community because they had the the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, and he could preach the gospel from that perspective. But as the gospel moved, as it, as it grew, so also did resistance, so also did persecution. And these believers were under severe persecution. And Peter's going to remind them that they are not without hope. It may feel like winter outside, people, but remember, within you is a living hope. Hang on to the hand of God in times of suffering. So with that, let's take a look at this passage in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, Peter, I'm apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. That's all present day Turkey, but then it was Roman. They were, those were Roman provinces. In verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now again, these people were people who life was just falling apart and Peter had to remind them. He had to remind them of three things. He had to remind them who they were. He had to remind them what is happening around them. And he had to remind them what is God doing. You know, when life is falling apart around you, you tend to ask these same questions. We tend to ask, who am I? What in the world happened here? What is happening around me? And and why, God? Why are you doing this? Those are some of the most common questions that people ask when things don't turn out the way they want them to, when a crisis hits, when bad news hits, when suffering hits and tribulation hits them. We ask these questions. And I think it's good that Peter answers them. Now, he doesn't go, this is exactly what God is doing in your specific case. But he's saying, look, God is not pointless. He has purpose in all things and he's working. And you are not dead, you are living. You're not on the sidelines. You're right in the center of his plan. Look at how he does this. He does this with two words that he gives them as their identity. He calls them elect exiles. Let's pack that. And by the way, I could unpack a a message that would go from now until the Chiefs play this afternoon on just those two verses. But I won't. But I won't. Right? Aren't you glad? Okay. Let's look at elect What does it mean? It means that God has selected them. Now, this is something they need to hear because the people around them rejected them. And I think it's tempting to think that when I'm rejected by man, that God rejects me. And Peter says, no way, no way. You've been rejected by the people around you. You've been rejected by your culture, but God has selected you. 
And secondly, just in case we don't go too far with this one, we need to be careful that when we're accepted by man, that we're not necessarily accepted by God. And I'm Joe, and I love to be liked. I just do. It's, it's my wiring. So when someone doesn't like me, or I get those nasty anonymous emails, or letters, handwritten letters, I, I go, oh man, life is so bad. Oh, people don't like me. But you know what? I know, I know ultimately whose eyes I need to be looking at. I need to be looking at what would God have us do as a church? What would God have us be as a people? And those are the eyes I need to look for, his acceptance. Because when we have God's acceptance, man's acceptance isn't as powerful to us. Now, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing when fellow brothers and sisters say, yes, let's move forward in this. But it's not guaranteed. It's not guaranteed. And here... Peter was just reminding them, remember whose eyes you need to look to, because you may feel rejected, but God said, accepted, and you're elected to serve me and to play a role in my plan here. And that word, uh, by the way, elect, is, is a Greek word that sounds like this, ekletois. And what it ultimately means is someone who's called out. This very root word is where we get the Greek word ekklesia for the church, the called out ones. Ek means out, kaleo means called. So ek, kaleo, the, the ekklesia, the called out ones. You've been called out of the world and into the center of God's will. So when bad things happen, when things are falling apart, it's real easy to think that your life is sidelined, your future has no purpose and no hope, and oh, all those things are falling apart. Remember, God is saying, I've elected you to be right here, right here. And then the second word he gives them is that word, exile. You are the elect exiles of the dispersion. And what does this mean? What does this mean? Well, it basically says, this is where you're at. You're in the world, but you're not of the world. What's happening around you is against you. It's against the gospel. It's not for you, but it's ultimately to preserve the systems of the culture around you. And the gospel will threaten everything when it comes into a community, when it even comes into a life. And this word exile has a lot to do with, if you read... um, Old Testament history, when were the people of God exiled? Egypt, right? They were put into Egypt. And so Peter speaking to a Jewish audience says, in many ways, in many ways, we're the people of God in slavery. We're the people of God in Egypt. And God is the one who's going to bring us into his kingdom. God is the one who's going to rescue us and take us out of this bondage. But right now, live for him. We're exiles, This diaspora of what he calls them, those who are dispersed, uh, some were scattered by history. And if you trace this, in 586, Nebuchadnezzar came and radically uh, took apart the city of Jerusalem and took the people in Jerusalem and scattered them all around the Babylonian Empire. Some of them could trace their lineage back to that scattering by Nebuchadnezzar. But there were others from these regions on Pentecost who were there and saw the Holy Spirit move, heard about the gospel, trusted in Christ, and went back to their cities and preached the gospel. 
And then there were others, like Peter, who traveled to these regions and proclaimed the gospel to them. And they believed in it, yet their city rebelled against them or rejected them. They are exiles, which means, which means they're not citizens. They're not citizens of this world. And you know, in our current political climate, in our current world, there's a lot of pride in our citizenship. But what God's saying to us in America as well across the world is ultimately our true citizenship is in heaven. And we need to be most concerned about living as citizens of heaven more than we're prideful of our citizenship on earth. I'm thankful I get to live in this country, but this is not my primary citizen as a follower of Jesus. It's not. If it were, if this were the primary citizenship of the world, then my goodness, the gospel would be for less than 5% of the world's population. It's for every nation, tribe, and tongue. The gospel goes to all the nations, to the end of the earth, not just those of us who are close here. It's for 100%. And so this citizenship, Peter is reminding them, you may be rejected on earth because you accepted Christ. You may feel left out on earth, but you are all in, in heaven. And so this, this whole first thing of, of our identity, of who we are and what is happening around us is they lived in a, a world that was opposed to them. Can I just ask before we move on, is our world opposed to the gospel today? The answer is yes. Yes, it is. Just go out into, and it doesn't take long, not too many steps outside of this room. Some even in our room are still questioning and they wonder, how can I believe in something I can't experience and feel and touch and see with my own eyes? How do I believe in a supernatural? Everything else just seems I need to be rational that you have to check your brains at the door to be a follower. I talk to friends who are not believers who believe that I I am somewhat crazy to believe in miracles, to believe what Jesus said, to believe in the authority of the word of God, that that is odd, that is strange, that for some reason you come up to a point and you quit being logical. Folks, that's, we're exiles. We live in a world that is opposed to the gospel, that is opposed to the belief in God. And therefore, when we live in that world, we need to remember God has selected us even though we're exiles. And so this living, this living hope then that he's going to call them to is really going to explain what God is doing. And that's where he, he calls us to live with this hope. The world may seem dead around you. Life may be falling apart. Things may be terribly broken, but remember, you have a living hope because Jesus resurrected from the dead. And so he then says, if you take a look at that last portion, if you have your Bibles open, that last portion, he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you. We've heard this before. If you've read the New Testament, you've come across Paul in his greetings. He says, grace and peace. If you were Jewish, you heard you loved the word peace. That was such a great word. But if you were Greek, you loved the word grace. And so he brings in Jew and Gentile in that greeting. But Peter goes to people who felt that they had lost it all. Peter says grace and peace be multiplied. He adds that multiplication picture to him. And I think that's important for us to realize It's those times when we lose things. 
It's those times when we miss the mark. It's those times in our failures where we feel subtraction happening to us that God might just be multiplying something in us. And that's a prayer to pray when you lose something. God, I lost it and it hurts. But I just pray that you would multiply whatever you want to do in my life. That's an important principle as a follower of Jesus. God, what do you want to do with my life? What do you want to do with this? Because it makes no sense to me. I'm willing to multiply something through this subtraction. Well, let's keep reading. I told you I would move on, right? Let's look at verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from Jesus Christ from the dead. And to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And look at the purpose he gives in verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's going to give us a picture of why. Why does the gospel shine at some of the darkest moments in our lives? You know, tomorrow we're going to be celebrating the birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And MLK Day is an important day for our country. And as I was thinking about celebrating this day, I contacted our lead pastor over at the High Crest campus, Jonathan Sublett, And I asked Jonathan, what's good for me to read as I celebrate this day? And he said, think about reading MLK's letter from a Birmingham jail. It was she wrote on Good Friday of of, uh, 1963 when he was placed in jail for his peaceful protests in the city of, of Birmingham. It's the longest letter he wrote in real small font. It's like six or seven pages. But as I read it, something was, I just started realizing the story behind it. You see, in Birmingham, clergy, pastors got together and wrote an article against Martin Luther King Jr., saying that he was an agitator, saying that it took even 2,000 years for Christianity to take hold in this country. Why would we, why can't we be more patient? Why do we have to agitate? Why do we have to protest? And he wrote this letter in response to their claims. And so personally, I've been convicted as I read this. I would encourage you tomorrow, if you get a chance, to just Google MLK, a letter from Birmingham jail, and it's on there. You can see it. it's many different formats. You can read it. This letter, which was the longest letter, which he said, really, there's not much to do in jail except write <laughs> and eat and pray. But this letter really challenged several pastors to be more involved in peaceful protests when there were injustices in the world. Billy Graham himself read this letter And it changed the way he approached this issue from sharing the gospel. He used to just hide behind. There would be no racial reconciliation until the gospel was in every life. But then he realized, no, the good, good news of the gospel must also be followed up by the good deeds of the gospel. Suffering brings that out in us. And Peter is saying, be people of hope. 
How does the gospel shine in times of suffering? How can you be a person of hope when things are falling apart around you? Peter gives three reasons. The first one is this, is the gospel by its very nature is the foundation of hope. He unpacks this and he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Didn't Peter know this? Didn't Peter realize that he became a person of hope? He was a person who went all in with the gospel because he realized Jesus is alive because he ate with a a risen savior, Jesus, at the shore of the same shore where Jesus called him to leave his nets and follow him. It was this Jesus who realized, uh, in, who, who called Peter back into the purpose of advancing the gospel. He says, folks, we have a living hope. Why? Because Jesus is alive. If Jesus would have just died, he would be a good moral man that we have looked to and he'd been a religious leader, but he would not be God. But since he, since he rose from the dead, he brings us hope. And Peter unpacks it. It's anchored in the past. He started with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but if you look in verse 2, it's actually before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, God had a plan to bring hope into this world when we would walk away. Jesus has been the plan all along. He has been the hope of the world and the hope of the ages. But then he goes to the present angle, that we have the sanctification of the Spirit and the sprinkling of blood. In other words, we're called to obey Christ, and when we fall, he covers us, which means grace is always in our relationship with him. But you know right now when you pray in the name of Jesus, Jesus represents you before the Father. Why? Because Jesus is our only hope in a relationship with God. And then the future this salvation that's going to be revealed in the, in the last times when Christ returns and makes all wrongs right and judges the world and brings in a full and final restoration, a full and lasting peace with God and peace with man. That is the future hope that we have. Everything we have is hopeful with Jesus. And this hope tells us, it preaches to us, the game is never over. There is never a time when you can say with Jesus, my life is hopeless. There's never a story that's following Jesus that is over. There may be setbacks, but there are never knockouts with Jesus. Because the gospel by its very nature is built on the foundation of hope. Secondly, we're called to a family with an inheritance. A family with an inheritance. Look what he says here in verse 4. You're called to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. When Peter talked about inheritance, everyone knew what he was talking about. But we don't necessarily know what he was talking about. This is a family term related to our heavenly father's wealth. And look what he says about it. It's imperishable, first indicator. That means it's never ravaged. It's never withered. It's always sourced. It's always fresh. Why? Because it's kept by a living Christ. It's imperishable. Their world around them was perishing. Many of them lost their homes. They lost their possessions. They lost people that were valuable and meaningful and whom they loved in their lives. They perished under suffering, under persecution. 
but that inheritance would be imperishable. And the second one, undefiled. That means that it's never spoiled. It's never rotten. It's never corrupted. That's the inheritance we have. Third, it's unfading, which means it's never worn or tattered. It's never outdated, never needs an update. It's always refreshed. It's unfading. And then if you have your Bibles open and you have pen or pencil handy, handy, just underline, kept in heaven for you. Because this Jesus who saves you also keeps you. This Jesus who saved you, not by your works, also has kept an inheritance in heaven for you, unrelated to your works, all related to your heavenly Father's wealth. Now, Peter had heard Jesus speak, so he could speak to this. Remember when Jesus said in Matthew 6, he said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break in and steal, but... Save up for yourself, store up for yourself treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy nor thieves break in and steal for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Peter knew about the inheritance and the resurrection of Jesus made it plain and clear he would not live for this world anymore. He would live for a future inheritance. You know, when you talk about the future life, heaven, or constructs of an eternal life with whatever deity a religion goes, most of them are built around our image of them, when heaven is about God's vision. And so I talk to a lot of people who are dying, and they say, just can't wait to relax and do the back 18 with the Lord. (laughs) Because that's a construct. What's a favorite thing for you to do on earth? Play golf. What will you do in heaven? Play golf forever and ever and ever. And that's a construct. And if you take a look at different constructs of what heaven will look like from different groups, my goodness, some of them, some of them, especially for women, can sound more like hell than heaven. But the biblical picture we get of heaven is it's life on God's terms. It's life where we ultimately are freed from our sinful nature that's selfish and wants life on our terms the way we want it or else we're walking away. No, all that independence and sin desire in me and control of the flesh, that will be taken from me and I'll fully and finally put my pleasure in God and he will be pleased And take pleasure in me for eternity. It will not be boring. It won't be a harp with a terry cloth robe. It will be unending adventure with God. Unending exploration and learning and discovery with God. Unending love and joy and peace. That's the future we have. That's all kept by the same one who saved us. We have a family with an inheritance. Folks, we need this family in our lives, especially when we're going through difficulty. That's why we call everyone into a small group, everyone, because we're family. And that's why when we meet together in a a small group, we don't just call people to play small group. We ask you to actually be open and vulnerable, to be authentic, because here's the value of it. When you walk through with Jesus through a world that's fallen apart, when you hang on to the hand of Jesus when things are happening that you can't understand and you follow him when someone else goes through it, it just blesses them. The words, me too, bless my small group all the time. 
when news about a child or news about a dream or news about a career is not where it, it, it was expected. And, and you can gather around someone and say, man, that happened in my life. That happened in my life too. God just shows up and reminds you of a greater inheritance. When we come together in moments like this, which God will scatter us in just a few minutes if I quit preaching. But, but right now, God brings us together as a family to really grab a hold of that inheritance and to understand we're not living for this world. It's not going to be treasure on earth. It's going to be a treasure in heaven. And then the final thing that Peter really encourages them is their salvation. Because God is the one who is saving us. It's his salvation. And there is a current salvation and there's a future fulfillment of salvation. Our current salvation is in Christ. That his work on the cross and in his life was for us. He lived perfectly for us. And he died finally for us. It's not by our works. It's not in us trying. It's not in us doing. It's us trusting in what has already been done through Christ. That is in his hand. And this salvation comes to us and it preaches to us. It says you are safe with God because of the work of Christ. It says therefore there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're in the family We are God's. We are his children. We are his and he is ours. Look at what else it says. Look at verse 6 with me. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. There they were. The world was coming apart. But look at verse 7. These happened so that the tested genuineness of your faith which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He likens difficult times to you being melted down into your core and all the impurities swept off the top. So when the heat rises, when the pressure rises in life, It's basically a picture of that is God using a test to bring out a genuine, a purer faith in you. And isn't that true? Because there's parts of me that are tested right now. And there's parts of me that are untested right now. What's the mark of a tested thing? It's when things have heated up. It's when the pressure got, and I kind of had to come down to, do I really believe this about God? Do I really believe this about following Jesus, or do I want to go my own way? And when I follow Jesus in that way, and I move, and by his grace, not only survive, but thrive when I'm tested, then it's so much easier to follow him with other things. But there's some other things that are untested. That's why it's so important if you've grown up in the church, if you've been here for a while, you went through our student, our children's ministry and student ministries, it's why there's some areas of your life that are untested. And if you walk away at 16 or drive away when you get your driver's license and you don't keep growing in your faith, you don't keep trusting and hanging on to the hand of the Lord, whatever point of faith you had when you walked away, that's all you got to deal with something as you deal with so many other more significant challenges in adult life. That's why it's important. Keep hanging on to the hand of God. Don't walk away. Things may not make sense, but that's when you take those steps of faith. Don't walk away. 
God is fulfilling out his salvation in you. There will be a final and full restoration of your relationship with God, your understanding, even your relationship with yourself and the people around you and even all of creation around you that is to come in the last time. And that fulfillment is happening. Hang on to the hand of God. When things are falling apart, come back to hope, Peter says. Why? Because right now in you, hope is alive. It's not dead. It's alive because Jesus is alive. When things are falling apart, join in with your family because we've got an inheritance that will far outweigh whatever we could be offered here on earth. And right now in heaven, our inheritance is secure. When things are falling apart, deepen your faith because right now on earth, Jesus is working out your salvation. Hang on to his hand. Would you stand up with me? Hope, hope always starts in the small things and moves to the larger things. So you're going to have a test this evening. The Chiefs are going to play. And I only know because of it in my own life. I mean, I've had years where the Green Bay Packers went to the Super Bowl and where they won and when they lost. I know of one person in this room who put his whole hopes for eternal life on the Chicago Bears. And look at where they are. I'm sorry, David. They'll be counseling after the service. They'll be counseling after the service. But isn't it something how something is uneternal as a football game can change the psyche of how you feel about life. It points us to realize there's people in this room who are going through a whole lot more challenges. Some of us are dealing with news with our children. Some of us are dealing with broken relationships. Some of us have, have felt we've lost hope with life who are going through depression or who are going through anxiety. And man, we need this living hope. It's far more than a Chiefs game. We need this hope. Right now in you, you have that living hope. Right now in heaven, you have an inheritance that is secure. Right now on earth, God is accomplishing salvation. Live for that hope. Let me pray for you. Father, before you scatter us, let us all join in and be all in on your kingdom that it would come on earth as it is in heaven. That we would be your people, people who don't have a dead hope and a dead end, but a thriving living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. May we move out from this place in hope and bring hope to a world that feels like it has no hope. It's in the name of Jesus we pray and for your kingdom that we live. Amen. God bless you.